On our show this week, we welcome back Fernando Angelucci from Titan Wealth Group and thestoragestud.com. When we last spoke to Fernando a year and a half ago, he had just purchased his first self-storage facility. Since that time, he has purchased 10 facilities in multiple states. In this episode, we're going to dig deep into how Fernando fills his funnel with self-storage deals, how he builds rapport with owners, and how he underwrites potential deals. If you have an interest in finding self-storage facilities to purchase, this high-level conversation is for you. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. And this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Fernando Angelucci, welcome back to the road to family freedom. Thanks for having me back. No, it's good to see your face again. So we were, we were just, we were chatting a lot, uh, before we jumped on here. I I looked back at the last time I interviewed you, uh, which was for episode 14. So if you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to Fernando's first show, you owe it to yourself to go back and listen to that one. But at that time it was January of 2019, uh, back when the world was somewhat normal, uh, mm-hmm. and at that time you were doing a little bit of everything. You were doing some wholesaling. You were still had some, uh, uh, residential real estate rentals that you were kind of offloading. You were doing some rent Airbnb arbitrage and you had just bought your first self storage facility. So what right. are you up to these days, Mr. Angelucci? Yeah. So to update that, so we now, uh, we're up to 10 self storage facilities that we own. We've already sold two off. Um, I just finished the capital raise for a $13 million uh, ground-up development of a self-storage facility. I got two other ones right after that are that are pretty much the same size. Um, sold all of my rentals, so no longer have any single-family homes, no longer have any multi-family homes. Uh, we do still have two Airbnb properties left. Those are the only two that kind of made it through the the whole COVID pandemic. But the reason they made it through is because they're right in the middle of downtown Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. right in the middle of all the action. So they they still had some pretty good um, some pretty good occupancy because people didn't want to travel out out of Chicago, so they stayed here and decided just to spend nights uh, downtown Chicago. And then the wholesaling business has been growing exponentially. Uh, we hired a COO about six months ago. Uh, we hired a lead manager and underwriter. We're about to hire two new acquisition guys. So that, that business, uh, uh, the owners are pretty much well removed from it. And, um, the majority of my time now is focused on self-storage, not only acquisitions, uh, but also raising capital, placing debt on these properties and education, as you can see out here. So, We're just trying to educate the people out there uh, that came from the same places that I did. You know, the the residential toilets, uh, 
<laughs> tenants and trash world and get them over to our side and, and see, you know, what, what it's all about. All right. So do you, could you give us a general overview of the types of facilities that you are currently buying storage? Yes. So we have three main silos. So the first one is the one that I started on, which is going out and finding these mom and pop investors, these mom and pop storage owners that they built their facilities 20, 25 years ago. You know, they're non-climate controlled, uh, usually no frills, and um, they haven't been brought into the 21st century yet, right? Mm -hmm. No management software, no marketing online. Their street rates haven't changed since they built it. Uh, so those properties will buy, we'll do a value add, and then within 18 to 24 months, we'll either sell them or we'll refinance all of our capital out of those projects for an infinite cash on cash return. The second silo is doing ground up developments. So unlike the first silo with these value add, these mom and pop facilities that may only be, you know, 20 to 30,000 square feet, the ones that we're building, we're specifically building to sell to REITs or real estate investment trusts that operate in the self-storage world. Um, these are monstrosities. They're, you know, 100 to 140,000 square feet. They're usually two to four stories tall. And we're usually going to be selling them anywhere between 15 to $22 million uh, once we're done. These ones take a lot longer, though. So those ones are usually going to take four and a half to five and a half years to go through the entire cycle, buying them, building them, leasing them up, and then selling them to a REIT. And then kind of in the middle is a hybrid, hybrid strategy. So the difficulties on the small facilities is the scale, right? You mm -hmm. can't can't build large equity checks. You can't get large amounts of rental income per month. Now on the, the ground developments are these class A facilities. Everything's really big, but because everything's really big, the REITs are also trying to compete with us, not only to buy from us, but then also to do their own developments. So it's driving prices through the roof, uh, especially for construction and for land. So the, the hybrid strategy is what's called an adaptive reuse project or a conversion project. And these are the projects where we go find a, a dormant, you know, Best Buy or Circuit City or Kmart that went out of business where the bones of the building is really good. Maybe even the mechanicals are pretty good, like the HVAC, the electrical, um, the plumbing, that type of stuff. And then we go in and we retrofit the interior with storage, either one floor, or even if the, the ceiling height is high enough, we can build two floors or what's called a mezzanine level. And so those are kind of like the three silos that we work on in the self-storage space now. Gotcha. And do you currently, you have all three in operation It's in across your portfolio? Yep. Yeah. So we have uh, 10 of the mom and pop facilities. We have one ground up development and then we have two conversion projects. And the reason why is we always try to, balance out cash flow with equity. You can't eat equity when things get tough. You can eat cash flow though. So what we try to do is make sure that our cash flowing portfolio is at least 40, 45% of our total um, portfolio amount. So that while we're taking a little bit more risk on the development side of things and the conversion side of things, because those won't cash flow, you know, for a certain period of time, for example, a conversion project may take 12 to 18 months to cash flow, a ground of development may take 24 to 32 months to cash flow. Um, whereas a mom and pop facility, we usually walk into cash flow immediately. And 
that's do the value add. So we want to make sure that we're balanced out because first and foremost, I'm a cash flow guy. You know, that's what builds wealth is is the monthly income coming in. Yeah. Well, and it's what keeps you alive if mar- the market gets a little squishy as well. So exactly. Uh, so I, I think exactly. you're smart to have. You know, the, you're, there's a lot probably higher upside with ground up development, obviously, but there's higher risk. But if you've got some cash flow coming in with the mom and pops, then that sort of, you know, you can absorb it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what sorts of markets are you operating in? I know you, you live in the Midwest. Is that kind of where, where your footprint is? No, not really. So, um, the markets will also be dependent on the strategy. So the mom and pop facilities, you're always going to be finding them in, tertiary and secondary markets. Uh, you may be in a exurb or a far suburb of a major metropolis, or you might be in a rural area. I have a lot of properties in rural areas. Uh, we do primarily focus on the Midwest because there is much more value here. You can buy properties at a much higher cap rate. These are existing properties. Uh, but we also focus outside of the Midwest in low property tax states. Usually your two highest expenses when it comes to operating self-storage is going to be property taxes and it's going to be uh, labor costs. So we're trying to keep those low as much as possible. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I have looked at facilities in the past in your neck of the woods in Illinois. Uh, I looked at, I remember way back, I looked at a three facility portfolio um, that was in the same city but every single facility was in a different township and every township <laughs> had its own tax basis. Uh, it was just such a, I had to call three different, you know, tax assessors office and none of them could tell me what was going to happen when that place sold. They're kind of like, well, we might reassess it, you know, and it, and it was a, it was a big enough thing. I, I bet it's still on sale. Nobody's bought that thing. Cause it was just, yeah. it was just too hard to unpack. So yeah, the only reason we invest in Illinois is because I live here. Uh, we uh, it doesn't meet the snuff test when it comes to tax low taxes. I think no. we're now I think the highest taxed state in the fifty states. So yeah. uh, we're actually More actually than looking to. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the combined taxes across income, property tax, all of that, I mean, we're we're right up there. Wow. Uh, so we're actually looking to sell our our two properties in Illinois right now, and I don't think we're gonna ever buy any more out here. (laughs) Well, and it's something for people to keep in mind. Uh, We interviewed uh, Neil Bawa a while back. And one of the things that he brought up, a great point he brought up was that, you know, a lot of uh, cities and states right now are going to be starved for tax revenue because of COVID. You know, they've just, the economies have just gotten devastated by a, a lack of the economies working. And so they're going to go start looking for tax revenue and, probably some places they may start to look is is in property taxes so just like keep an ear out on that yeah little story so right before i just sold my last two rental properties um it was actually last week last friday and the reason we did that is because of covid we couldn't evict to to rehab the properties and to resell them because it's a hot market there's no inventory so we just decided to sell them to an investor with the tenants in place. And the reason we decided to sell them is we bought each of these properties for $45,000 a piece. And about three, four weeks ago, I got a letter from the tax assessor saying that my taxes on both of the properties would be $10,000 a piece. So I'm paying almost one fourth of the property value in taxes per year. So I said, you know what? 
I don't care. Fire sell them. Let's get yeah. out of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just crazy. Uh, I mean, I get it. I get it. You know, but as an investor, you just kind of go, mm, yeah, I can't do that. You know, let somebody right. else, uh, let somebody else that's got deeper pockets, uh, handle that one. So, yeah. um, so I, I, you know, I love the three silos and I would love to dig in to, um, the, the, the big re you know, the big projects and the conversion projects. But I think what I want to rather, rather than in the interest of time, let's just stay focused on the mom and pops, uh, because I think okay. that probably is a little more relevant to our audience. Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about at the end about, uh, you know, your syndications and if people are interested in that, they can reach out to you. So, sure. um, your mom and pops, uh, where, where are they now? Like what, what, what markets there are secondary tertiary markets, rural markets, uh, what States? So the ones that we currently own are in Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama. Uh, and we have properties under contract in Florida, Ohio, Kentucky, and Texas currently. Okay. So sort of uh, Midwest to Atlantic seaboard South, down to Southeast. Gotcha. Yeah. That's a big footprint there. <laughs> yeah. Those are the markets we really like, you know, yeah. I mean, as soon as you start going West coast and East coast, things start getting really expensive, not only on the property tax, but also on the cap rate expectations. So yeah. we'd rather not compete in those markets and go to where the population growth is, where the affordability is and where there's value. Yep. That's exactly what we've, it's been exactly our experience as well as, you know, uh, it's nice. Hey, we like it out here in the West, but there's a lot of open space. Uh, and the, the markets tend to be kind of like a little Island and, uh, they tend to be competitive because the REITs, because if there's a population center, the REITs are kind of probably be there and there's a lot of open land, and uh, it doesn't take much for them to just go, yeah, we think a 150,000 square foot facility would be good right there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're so spread out. Do you have boots on the ground in all those places or are you kind of like sending people out once you find a deal? Yeah. So we're kind of a hub and spoke style management model. So we have a central management office in Iowa. And they oversee all of the property managers at the facilities that warrant one. And some of the facilities are either small enough or have become automated enough where we don't actually need a property manager there. It's just some boots on the ground style employee, somebody that does maintenance and checks locks and overlocks, uh, you know, overlocks people, but doesn't, is not really in charge of pushing sales, pushing any type of uh, occupancy increases. They're just there to kind of do a maintenance plus if mm -hmm. you will. Um, but everything is run out of the Iowa office. Gotcha. Uh, and then as far as, um, when you're looking, when you're initially looking at a deal, how are you making that initial? I mean, cause there's going to be at some, at some point you got to go out and actually, you know, put boots on the ground at the facility. But when you're just looking, how are you sort of evaluating that initial yes. contact? Sorry. So, so we always have a, it's kind of a, a tiered system so that we're not spending too much money up front on a deal that's not going to make sense in the end. So how it works is usually in the beginning, we're going to do our desktop underwrite on the facility using anything that we have available to us, Google Earth, seller photos and videos. 
maybe hiring somebody on task rabbit or fiverr to go take photos of the facility and send to us so you know things that cost relatively small amounts of money once we get to the next phase and we know that this is a deal that we want to do further due diligence on we'll actually send out uh, one of the owners of our company um, Ron is well-versed in construction. He's been doing it for many decades now, and he will go put eyes on the facility and tell us, here's what I'm seeing. Here's the things that we need to be concerned about. Once we get past that phase and we're pretty much ready to, you know, to close on the facility, we're already under contract. At that point, we'll actually pay a civil engineer, uh, to go out and do a phase one environmental inspection, as well as a PCA or a property condition assessment where they'll give us a detailed hundred plus page report of here's everything that's broken. Here's how you're going to have to fix it. Here's when you're going to have to fix it over the next 10 years. Here's how much money you should set aside each year to make sure that you can fix these capital improvements um, or make these capital improvements. Um, and that's, you know, going to run you anywhere between five to $7,000. So in the, the scale of things, you got desktop underwrite, maybe Fiverr, maybe somebody on task rabbits going to be say 50 to hundred bucks. Then you have the second tier, which is sending out one of the owners. So that's going to be airfare. That's going to be car rental. That's going to be hotel. So call it a thousand thousand to 1500 bucks. And then the last tier is going to be your, your engineers that are walking the property. And that's going to be anywhere between five to 7,500. Gotcha. And the third tier is not going to typically happen until you are under contract. Correct. Yeah, not only under contract, but a bank is ready to lend on it. You know, the, the, all the contract terms have been negotiated. We have all the, due, all the due diligence documents we need from the seller. We need to know that this is a go because I'm not just going to spend 7,500 bucks yeah. on every deal that comes across the table. Yeah, this is part of your due diligence, the final due diligence. Correct. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, so let's talk about, you know, we could there's a lot of different things we could cover, but what I really want to get with you is, you know, I would say it was one of your specialties and that's coming from your wholesaling background, uh, which yeah. is finding and underwriting. Now we just covered underwriting a little bit there and we can maybe dig in a little deeper, but, um, uh, what does the top of your deal funnel look like? Like what is, where is the bulk of your, um, funnel coming from? Yeah, so we have a multi-marketing channel approach. Um, so what we'll do is we're, and I'll kind of get into, you know, opening the kimono, as you said, before we started recording here. So the very first thing we're Let's always looking naked. to do, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the very first thing that we're looking to do is we're trying to go direct to seller, right? That's not to say that brokers don't have value, but just looking through our data, we have purchased 95% of our deals direct to seller. And the reason why is, is I use the auction house analogy. If you go to an auction house and you're the only bidder at that auction house, you're going to get properties at a, at a much lower price. If you go to an auction house and there's a hundred or a thousand people in that auction house, that price is going to be bid up probably above what it's worth. And so our focus is always first and foremost on going to the seller directly, saving them the commission so they don't have to pay it, but then also getting us a deal that is more in line with market and not the frenzy of, of available capital that's out there right now. What people don't realize, and, and it's tough because there's this dichotomy in our country, 
you know, there's a lot of money looking for investments right now. A lot of people exit the stock market. A lot of people are, are doing 1031 exchanges. There's just capital floating around everywhere. And because there's so much capital, it's cheap. It's cheap capital. And that causes prices to go up, especially when you're competing against, say, REITs, where all they really care about is, can I beat inflation by a couple basis points and hold this property for 30 years? You know, when we're looking at properties, we're going to hold them for three to five years and then value add and flip them or do a cash out refinance. So that's the term that we're looking at. This is five year horizon as opposed to these 30 years. So when we're going direct to the seller, uh, we have a few channels. The very first thing we're going to do is we're going to find these sellers, right? So how do we find them? We're, we primarily use data brokers and list brokers. And what we'll do is we'll go to these guys and we'll say, Hey, you know, we're looking for self storage owners that, you know, maybe own two or fewer facilities. They're located in these 24 states. Uh, they, I want you to scrub out the top 100 operators because I don't want to deal with, with these professionals that are trying to sell their facilities at a 4.5% cap rate. And I want you to scrub out the top 50 management companies because they usually will advise their sellers to sell it to them instead of to sell it for uh, to us if the price is... is you know, has, is, is a good enough price. So we do that. And the list that we ask our brokers to scrub against our, our two land classification code systems. The first is the SIC code, which is a, an older classification system that was used. And then the newer system is the NAICS code. And that's the newer classification system that's used to find these, um, to find these sellers. Once we get this list, then the brokers will scrub all those things out, like I said previously. Now we have an Excel sheet full of a name or a facility name and a tax mailing address. At that point, we feed it into a skip tracing software. The skip tracing software will then give us, you know, the three to five most recent phone numbers they have on, on title just by scrubbing, you know, semi-public records like utility bills and and insurance quotes and things like that. Uh, it'll also give us the five most recent email addresses they used. And the reason we do this is because when we first started mailing to, uh, to self-storage owners, each mail piece is pretty expensive. We're talking, you know, up, upwards of a dollar plus to send one letter. And if we're sending a letter to 30,000 owners, that's $30,000 just to do one touch. Whereas a text message costs me one and a half cents or an email will cost me, you know, one and a half cents or a cold call will cost me whatever the minutes are. So we're always going to try to do the cheaper things first. And then slowly the people that don't, the low hanging fruit, if you will, that doesn't fall off the tree. Then we start using the more expensive uh, marketing models. So first we hit them with a text message. We hit them with an email campaign. We hit them with a phone call or a cold call. And then we cycle through those a few times for maybe two to three weeks. If they don't respond to that, then we'll send the letter. Now, with that being said, the, the type of seller profile we're going after, they usually respond the best to a letter. You know, it's a lot slower. It's, it's more personable. It doesn't feel like spam. Um, so we have very high response rates when we use direct mail. Uh, those rates are usually going to be for an, uh, you know, all leads unqualified or not. You're looking at about a 4% response rate, which is massive in the direct mail world. 
once we go through and scrub those to see how many are actually qualified, you know, do they have a facility and are they looking to sell regardless of price? Then it falls down to anywhere between 1.7 to 2.2% response rate, which is still phenomenal, right? Mm -hmm. It's still phenomenal. It's just, it's just expensive. So we try to get the, the people that are okay with cell phones the people that are okay with emails first, and then we'll do the marketing. Right. So once we get to that point, um, then we, we start to start the conversation. Unlike residential, which is a very quick transaction timeline, relatively, where you, you call them, you get all the information in a 30-minute you know, phone call, and then you can make an offer in a day or two, go see the property in one day, and then hopefully been, be in and out of the transaction in 30 to 45 days. With self-storage, everything needs to go way slower. It's even more important to really focus on rapport. I can't tell you how many sellers in the past two years where I know their entire life story. I know the names of their kids. I know where their kids went to school. I've talked to their kids on the phone. Um, I know what they're going to do in retirement. I know what they're going to do with the money for the self-storage facility. So it's much slower. So this timeline, unless unlike residential, which is 30 to 45 days, this timeline is more like three months to six months, even nine months on some of the deals that we've done in the past. And you just got to stick in there. And you, and you really have to build that rapport. On top of that, when you're grabbing due diligence information, what you'll find is that the due diligence information is much harder to come by and is not as organized as you would expect, say, in the residential field. You know, in residential, someone says, hey, I have an address at this property. You can usually Google it. It's on Zillow. You know the bedroom count. You know the bathroom count. You know the square footage. You can look up the tax record to see what they bought it for, what loan they have on it. With self-storage, it's, it's very difficult to do that. You have to get all this information from the owner who is at the time operating a business that you're trying to buy, right? Because self-storage isn't just real estate. It's also a business. Mm -hmm. So you need to get, you know, occupancy reports, rent rolls, uh, street rates. What advertising campaigns are they working on? What capital improvements have they done over the last five years? Are they open to seller financing? Are they... What type of mortgage do they have in there? What's the rate? I mean, so there's a ton of, what are the sizes of each of the units? Where are the units located physically on the property? So it's just a lot more due diligence items you have to gather. I, I have a list. I think it's, we have, we request like 28 different documents, you know, service contracts, maintenance, who does the snow plowing, who does the, who does the grass? I guess in your neck of the woods, there's no snow or grass. Uh, <laughs> who, who washes the rocks, yeah. you know, to make that right. Um, so it's just a much slower process and it's really rapport driven because the way that they're looking at their facility is almost like are you, you're taking my daughter to the dance. Like I need to know that you're a good guy before I even start talking about my daughter. Right. Mm -hmm. That type of thing. Um, so it, it, it's a lot slower. Um, and once we start getting those documents, then we look at, OK, is this viable not only from an income-based perspective, but is this viable based off of competition in the area? And I'll go into some of this stuff here in detail. Um, so we're still talking about marketing. So I want to make sure yeah. I, I, I wrap and it up. I, before you move on, tangents. And before you move <laughs> on, I've got a couple of, I've got some follow-up questions. So don't, don't go okay. on. Okay. So after we approach these people directly, then we're, then we also will branch out into our network. So we will get deal, you know, we're, even though, it's very rare that we'll purchase self-storage facilities from brokers. We are on all of the brokers lists, right? I mean, we get hundreds of deals a year from brokers. Um, we tell everyone we know that we buy self-storage because 
with self-storage, it's one of those things where it's very difficult to find them. They're not on some central database somewhere. And the driving for dollars method is a really viable method in this industry because, you know, a lot of the facilities that we purchase, you couldn't find them on Google. They weren't listed anywhere. They wasn't on Yelp. The only way that you'd know it was there is if you drove past it. Right. And that's one of the value adds that we can do. So that's kind of where all the funnels come from on the marketing side. Yeah. So you're, you're starting with, you know, you've sort of talked about going from the cheapest method to the most expensive method. So, uh, text, phone call, um, email, text, email, phone call, text, email, phone call. And then finally, you know, uh, a physical letter. Yeah. Um, and you, you would say you're probably getting the best response out of the letter. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. The text message is performing the most poorly. Yeah. Um, do you get any, ra- get any rage, get any rage, rage text messages back? Oh, we have, I was just looking at a bunch of rage text messages this morning with our, our lead manager and they are some, some very great responses out there. Yeah, Let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> yeah. I like to, when we, we occasionally get ones from, I think they're probably like wholesalers or something about yeah. our single family properties. And um, I'll be like, oh, not, and like, I'll write back and I'll be like, hey, if you want to learn more about like other types of investing, here's our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I don't think they even look the funny at part it, is but... that you never know, yeah, right? Yeah. The the funny part is, is we have had sellers respond to our letter being like, hey, you know, love to talk to you after they rage texted us back like 60 days ago and they didn't put one and one together that we were the same person. Yeah. So that the same seller responded positively to a letter yeah. versus the yeah. text message that they got from us. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with, and I know you have told me this before and forgive me for not remembering it, who, who you're buying okay. lists from these days, Mr. Angelucci. Yeah. So we have a data provider out here in Chicago that we use. Uh, they were on the Inc 500 fast growing companies list. I believe their name is exact data. And if you'd like to work with the data scientists that I use or the list builder that I use, just shoot me a quick message. Um, at the end of this podcast, I'll give you guys ways to get in contact with me and I'll, I'll connect you with Amir. He's awesome. He knows exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, so you can literally just almost copy exactly what I'm going to say, Hey, Amir, I'd like the list that Fernando gets and I'll, I can connect you with him. He's, he's awesome. Cause the, the problem with just going through a generic list provider, like a list source or any of these type of things online is that self-storage is such a niche product. You can't use an online order form to get the list. It's just not going to work out well. You need to talk to somebody that knows how to manipulate this data in special ways. And I've, you know, the nice thing about Amir is I'll go to him and I'll say, Hey, here's what I'm looking for. I think I know how you can find these. And he's like, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? How about if we add this subset of people into the list? And I was like, that's great. You know, I don't need, I don't know anything about this side of the world. I don't, play with lists all day. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad I have a professional that can build these things for me. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and then next, what are you using for skip tracing software? Yeah. So there's, there's two services that we use. Uh, the first is a buddy of mine from one of my masterminds, collective genius. His company is called lead Sherpa. It's uh, not only a texting platform, but it's also a skip tracing platform. And his skip trace is one of the best I've found 
in the entire industry. It's totally worth it. Um, once we, we use lead sherpa to skip trace, if there's any scragglers that didn't get um, that didn't get hits on, then we'll upload them into Skip Genie. Uh, it's, it's almost two to three times the cost of lead sherpa, but it'll usually catch the ones that lead sherpa misses. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so. Now Can I plug my uh, my letterhouse too? My yes, mailhouse? of course, of course. Fantastic. Sorry, sorry. I I just yeah. figured you were still handwriting them. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, we use a centrally located mailhouse. It's called Blink Marketing. It's in uh, Ohio, so they can hit everywhere in the lower forty-eight within two to three days. And I work with Tim Estrella. He's amazing. I mean, talk about absolutely wonderful customer service. Once a year, he flies up to Chicago, takes me out to dinner, talks about how, you know, his ideas of making my letters perform better. I've already taken his advice twice on little changes on our letter and it boosted our performance by, you know, something like half a percent. It's fantastic. So uh, awesome. Blink Marketing. Also reach out to me. I could, I could connect you with Tim. He's, he knows exactly what we're doing. He knows exactly how to find these self-storage owners and, and get their attention to your letter to finally call you back. Yeah, it's interesting. I just recently had a, um, on, I, I follow tons of self-storage owners on Facebook, and uh, there's one guy that posted a letter that he got from somebody who's in a group that he's in, he's, you know, a group of self-storage, <laughs> aspiring self-storage owners. And I sat there and I read the copy on the letter. And I was like, I need to change the copy on my letter. Cause it was almost, the letter was almost identical to the letters that I've been sending out. And I was like, Oh my God, I just, this, you know, cause I know, I know how many people are looking for self storage right now. And I know every owner I've talked to said, yeah, I get like, I get four or five letters a day. Right. And you know, and so, so how are oh, you sidebar on that? Okay. Yeah. So sidebar on that, there's something called the golden list. So the golden list are the, the, the owners that don't get letters because their mailing information is incorrect. So what will happen oh, yeah. is you'll send out your letters and then they'll come back undeliverable with that little golden or yellow strip on the bottom. Mm -hmm. That's your money list. If you can yep. find a way to get in contact with those guys, they don't get any letters because something was messed up in the assessor's website. Yep. Yep. No, I've heard that before and that's great advice. So, all Ooh. right. So your... Are you sending, are you sending a letter to everyone? Or are you only sending a letter to ones where you're getting a little bit of a nibble? Yeah. So what we'll do is again, we hit the low hanging fruit first. If they already, you know, as long as it's not a hostile response, you know, we'll text them, we'll call them, we'll email them. Three things can happen. They'll either say, yes, I'm interested. Let's talk. So they already come off of the, the, the mailing list. Cause we, we already got to hold them. We don't need Another one will say, I'm not ready yet, but put me on your follow-up campaign. Or they say, I'm not ready yet, but I will be in however many years. We'll put them on a slow drip campaign of either email or cell phone, maybe uh, a letter every year, right? Very low volume. And then we have the people that say, you know, F off. Yeah. Don't ever call me again, that type of stuff. So we immediately remove those people uh, because we follow all of the, the can spam act stuff religiously same thing with the tcpa compliance for texting as well those people get removed off our list immediately they never get contacted again not, so the letter is really only so not even they don't <laughs> even get a letter no never as soon as you tell us that you don't want to talk to us and it, it's in a hostile tone you'll never hear from us again okay um 
so the only people that will get letters are the ones that don't respond to anything or they responded neutral about not selling, being like, hey, not looking to sell uh, maybe in five years, right? Um, or people that uh, they said they responded not wanting to sell in a positive manner, being like, you know, I'm not ready right now, but, you know, if you, I don't know when I'm going to be ready, but just, you know, touch base with me. Uh, those are the people that will get letters. Yeah. And again, we're always going to skew towards the cheaper marketing first. So text message, email, hit them with a couple of cycles of that first. And then if, if they're not, if we're not getting responses, then they'll get a letter. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you've got somebody, all right, you've got a, an owner on the phone who's saying, all right, I might be willing to sell. Uh, how's that conversation happening? Is that happening with somebody with a VA who's kind of qualifying them or is that, a higher someone higher on your team yeah because of the very personal nature of self-storage we don't use virtual assistants on that side of the world as far at least for the, com the direct communication text message email sure but if somebody wants to jump on the phone and you know they want to hear a familiar voice if you will um unlike our residential side where we do use vas we actually call them bdas i think vas now that word has kind of a negative connotation. So business development associates are BDAs. Yes. Yeah. Um, they, uh, in the residential side, they do the whole deal. They pre-qualify then get it to an acquisition manager on the self storage side. It, if anyone responds via text or email, they can handle it. But as soon as someone's like, I'm going to jump on the phone or they call in, it goes directly to an acquisition manager. That's either in Chicago or in Iowa. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And then, so that conversation is going to kind of go along the lines of this. It's going to be like, Hey, you know, this is Fernando Angelucci. Thanks for giving me a call. How can I help you? Like, Oh, you know, I got your letter. I got your text or email. I just want to figure out what it's about. It's like, Oh, great. You know, fantastic. And then immediately run into the rapport building as quick as possible. Yeah. Tell me about your baby. <laughs> yeah. It, that's, I literally say those words. Tell me about your baby. Yeah. That's that's, and then just shut up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Say that. And just don't, talk don't interrupt and let them go and they will go they and will let go them for and 30, if there's silence 45 if there's silence let just sit there i try to get to 10 mississippi if there's silence before i say a word and just yeah. see if and usually they'll chime back in to fill the silence with something else yeah. um and so just constantly building rapport over and over and it's trying to get as much information as i can out of them without being too uh, overbearing, if you will. Mm -hmm. So if I hear any hesitation, when I start requesting information, I pull back yeah. and then go back into rapport building or, Hey, maybe I can shoot you an email. Uh, you know, that way you have all my contact information. Feel free to Google me. You know, I'm all yeah, over yeah. the internet. I'm a, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm not yeah, some yeah. My night guy. Um, so the things that we're going to be asking for are going to be, you know, right on the first conversations like, Oh, okay. Tell me about your baby. And I have a sheet and as they're telling me things, I'm going to fill them in. And if they miss anything, then I'll jump back and it's like, well, how about this? So for example, the things we're looking for are uh, how big is your facility? And they can answer that question in a different, a couple different ways. They either can tell you how many buildings it is. They can tell you how many units it is, or they can, if they're very sophisticated, they can tell you what the net rentable square feet of the facility is. And I'll start plugging in these, these little numbers, right? Um, at, at one, at, some point in that conversation, once I feel like they're more comfortable with me, then I start going into the more risky questions, which are usually financial based questions. What's your income? 
what's your expenses? What's your net operating income? How much do you owe on the on the mortgage? Are you are you looking for a cash sale? Are you looking to sell on terms? Selling on terms or seller finance and self storage is a wonderful avenue because what you'll find is a lot of the owners have owned these facilities for 20, 25, 30 years. So they have not only are they facing massive capital gains because they probably built it for 50 grand and now selling it for 550, mm -hmm. but they're also facing massive depreciation recapture. So seller finance is actually, I've had multiple owners suggest it to me before I even had a chance to bring it up to them to say, hey, I don't want to. I don't want to take all this capital gains hit this year. You know, what if we spread it out over a period of time? Yeah. And that's me on the phone. Just, yes. Oh, really? That's yeah. Let's, <laughs> yeah. what does that we look like? That. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and then after that, then the rest of the questions are kind of like nitty gritty questions, which are more uh, suitable for follow-up conversations or follow-up correspondences. Like what's your rent roll? How many people are back due? What are you charging per unit? Uh, are there any owner's units? Is there opportunity to expand? And then one of the things I love to do is kind of have them sell me on why they should buy, I should buy their facility. I say, Hey, you know, this, you know, Neil, this sounds like a fantastic, fantastic property. Why would you ever sell this thing? Kind of pull back a little bit, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And then they start trying to sell you. It's like, well, you know, there's no competitors nearby in a two mile radius. And the only competitor in a five mile radius is a hundred percent full. And we all have wait lists and there's, three acres on the side of my property that you can buy and, and develop. And these are all things yeah, I'm taking yeah. notes on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you're not, you're not just going through a list of how big is your facility? How many square feet no. is it? You know, no. The no. second they hear that, you know, they get really turned off. And one of the things you got to realize is who am I going up against? Right. And the majority of people you're going up with against are these brokers. When you join Marcus and Melchap, the very first thing they tell you to do is go get a list and call everyone on that list five times before you come talk to me again, right? So there's people hounding these, the, and they're, they're doing those types of questions. How many units is it? What is the net rentable square footage? What is your rent roll look like? And yeah. it's just like, yeah, yeah. they don't want to hear that. They want to yeah. connect. You know, self-storage yeah. is one of those things where it's not a very high contact business. So there's times where these owners, which are usually self-managing, they'll be sitting in their office for two weeks without seeing another person walk into their facility, right? So sometimes they just like to get on the phone. And I've had some initial conversations that have lasted two and a half, three hours. I kid you not. Yep. Same. Yeah. Just yeah. And 90% of that conversation had nothing to do with their self-storage facility. Yep. <laughs> I had a 45-minute conversation about trout fishing in North Carolina. Yep. Right? Yeah. I spent more time talking to a guy about his... Uh, uh, vacation rentals in Destin, Florida, uh, than I did about storage one time, right. you know, he was like, you know, and, uh, and his son, you know, who lived own, you know, lived in, uh, lived over the top of one facility and basically ran it, you know, and, and I, when, when his first facility was not really necessarily a deal, I said, well, you know, would you consider selling all three facilities, you know, just go for, you know, uh, try and make a deal out of it. He's like, eh, you know, my son, I don't want to kick my son out, you know, and, uh, and just, you know, you just find out more and more about who they are and what their life is like. And just the storage stuff will come along. It will come. Yeah. Uh, but treat them like a person, like you're trying to get to know them because that's really right. where the money's going to be made. Exactly. Sometimes they're also exactly. older and you've got that stereotype where like older people just, they just want to talk. 
they just want to talk to you. I dealt with it at the clinic, the homeopathic clinic that I worked at. It was the the clientele was like this older thing, and so I get on the phone to, to you know just answer questions and stuff. And the same thing, but they really liked me because I listened to them, and right. and I was able to help them better because. So it's, it's the majority important. of the majority of the properties we have bought have been from owners that are 65 plus within with a maybe exception of two of them. And a lot of them will actually after we sell the facility, they'll keep stopping by the facility just to see how things are going cool. year, two years after we remember that first facility I was talking about that I bought on yep. your last podcast, oh, yeah. that owner still drives by our facility every couple months. All it happens without fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because cool. they, they, they want to see you succeed because they've become friends with you. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and they're passing on their baby to you now. That's great. That's great. So, so what you know that that now you ha- now have deal flow from all right. of your marketing. You've got deal flow, and and they start to come across your desk. And I know, uh, and I probably don't have nearly the deal flow that you do. That it can turn into a flood very very quickly. <sighs> And, yes. and you have to really become, at least I've had to become very good at very quickly. All right. Is this, let me take five minutes to figure out whether or not this is something I want to dig into deeper. And one of the first things I'll do is if it comes from a broker, I'll immediately, if it's like, if it's on LoopNet or whatever, and there's a broker, I'll immediately call that broker and say, is this still available? Because I don't want to spend any time on it if, if. It's uh, no, I'm sorry. It's under contract. I forgot to take the right. listing down and blah, 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 you know. Um, but how are you doing that initial sorting kind of pre-qualifying? Uh, yes. 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 Yeah. So we have just like with the property conditions assessments, we're also tiering our underwriting to make sure we're not wasting time. So just like you said, with us, any deal that comes to us from a broker actually goes to the bottom of the pile below any direct to seller deals. That's just how it is. Because we already know there's going to be a lot more competition on those deals than on the ones that were direct to seller. Inside of the direct to seller deals or the, the broker deals, then we start looking at ways to tier them with, from what can I do quickly versus what's going to take a lot of time. Right. I have this massive underwriting Excel sheet, right? It took me two years to build. It's huge. It takes multiple days to fill out. So we don't want to do that first. The very first thing we're going to start doing is let's do the polka dot test. Okay. Let's, let's drop a pin on our facility in Google or the subject facility in Google. And then we're just going to type in self storage near whatever city it's, it's in. And then we're going to see all the red dots that pop up around it. If it's in a sea of red dots, there's a good chance that is an oversaturated market. And even if we buy it at a slam dunk number, it's only going to go downhill from there, right? So that's that's test number one. Test number two is just start looking at those competitor facilities online to see if they have any availability. If very quickly I start noticing that all the facilities have one or two units left, or if they even have an online portal, you know, that's going to be a good sign for us to move forward because that means the competition is 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 maxed out and there's probably some pent up demand in that market. Another thing we can do very quickly is look at the traffic counts. So this is less important now than it was, say, 15, 20 years ago, but it's still important. 
Um, so you can just go on whatever state you are. So if you're in Nevada, you type in Nevada Department of Transportation traffic map. It'll pull you up into usually some type of GIS system or or interactive map that you can move around and you can start seeing traffic counts. If it's on a road that has a solid amount of cars going by it every day, that's probably going to be something worth my time. If it's in the back corner of some industrial park behind, you know, like a chemical processing plant, I don't think I'm going to waste my time on that. Um, I'm also going to just, again, look at Google and look at, is there demand drivers in the area? Is there a bunch of multifamily housing surrounding it or a bunch of subdivisions surrounding that property? Is there a, a military base nearby? Is there a school, a university or a college nearby? These are all types of demand drivers that, that feed into your self-storage facility. Um, once it hits those metrics, then we say, okay, let's, let's, let's dig deeper. Let's, let's really do a full-scale competition study. So at that point, now I'm, I'm using Google Earth to measure distances from my facility to the closest competitors, not only as the crow flies, but drive time as well. I'm going to call those facilities and I'm going to do my darndest to find out what's your occupancy, uh, what's your delinquency, delinquency rate, do you have a wait list? Um, uh, I'm also going to then look at any type of municipalities to see, are there any pending permits for new construction self-storage that I can't see mm -hmm. on the Google Maps? Or maybe one that were recently built that the Google streetcar or the Google satellite hasn't you know, passed over to catch again, you know, some of these rural areas, your Google, if you look at Google maps on the bottom right corner, it'll tell you when that photo was taken. And some of these was like taken six years ago. So I have yeah. facilities could have come in during that time. Right. So I'll call, I'll call all these municipal departments. I'll call the, the economic development department say, Hey, do you, do you have a master plan that calls for more self-storage or is there a moratorium on self-storage? If there's a moratorium on self-storage and you're not allowed to build anymore, that's a good market to get into because you have a huge barrier to entry now. You can only buy existing. You can't expand the current supply. Um, I'm going to call the permitting department to see if there's any active permits for self-storage that's going to need to be built. I'm going to call um, like the local uh, chamber of commerce and see if there's any self-storage facilities that participate in their group. At that point, then I have enough data to start doing supply and demand analysis. So this is where you start really taking a lot of time to get into the nitty nitty gritty. I'm going to go on Google Earth and I'm going to measure with their measuring tool the amount of square footage they have in buildings. If it's a climate control building that has interior alleyways or interior hallways and stuff, I'm going to do a little calculation to say, okay, this is a hundred thousand square foot building, but I'm going to lose 30% of that to hallways and mechanical closets and office and bathrooms. I'm going to go measure the facilities that are drive up. I'm going to grade them. Is this a class A facility? Is this a class B facility? Is this a class C facility or a D facility? How old are these facilities? Um, what is truly my competition? If I'm looking to buy a class A facility, I'm not really going to look at the class C facilities as competition and vice versa. If I'm buying a class C facility, I'm not really going to look at the class A facility as competition because it's going to have a, a different clientele, different needs and different price bracket that you can rent these facilities per square foot to these tenants. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to it, but I'm going to put more weight, maybe a 60% weighting or a 40% extra weighting on the facilities that are in my tier 
when I'm looking to buy them. Once I get the square footage of all these competitors, then I'm going to go and pull population data in the local area, uh, usually in a radius of the facility, either as the crow flies or in drive time, which we found is a little bit more reliable. Uh, we learned this the hard way when we were looking in Tennessee and North Carolina, which happens to have a ton of mountains. Who would have known? So on the map, as the crow flies, it looks like you're only, you know, a mile away. But really to traverse that mile, you have to go up and down six different mountain ranges. And it takes 45 minutes to get to that one mile radius, right? So we found that super important. And once we have that population, we divide the total amount of square footage in the market by that total amount of population in that market. And we do multiple size concentric circles, right? We'll do a one mile, a three mile, a five mile, and a 10 mile if it's super, super rural to find the supply index. The supply index is a ratio of the amount of square footage per person in that market. And it is important but it's not the end all be all. Again, it's something that we wait. So if there is say a facility in a rural market where the supply index is five net rentable square feet per person, that seems like a good deal on the face knowing that, okay, well, the average national equilibrium is 5.96 square feet per person. But then if all of a sudden I start calling all the competitors and I realize all competitors are 60% occupancy, that's scary. So what we'll do is we'll put like a 60% or a 50%, maybe even higher, maybe a 70% rating on the competition analysis. And then like a 30 to a 40% weighting on the supply index numbers, vice versa. Say you're looking at like downtown of a major metropolis, downtown Chicago, for example, not, not rare to find supply index numbers in the 10, 11, 12, you know, square feet per person, but you have high rises on every acre, not just one house in like you would in a rural area. So all of a sudden I see a 12, you know, a 12 net rentable square feet per person supply index, but I call the, the neighboring competitors and they're all full. That's still a good sign. So it's just it taking that into account. Mm-hmm. Once I've done all of that, Traffic counts, demand drivers, competition study, supply index. The final thing that I do is an actual analysis of the property itself. So I always will do an analysis on the market first and foremost, before I waste my time digging through all the numbers and rent rolls and unit mixes. So if all four of those things are good, then we'll go into property analysis. And in the property analysis, I'm looking at profit and loss statements. I'm looking at occupancy reports. I'm looking at unit mix. Um, why is your occupancy going down or why is your occupancy going up? Is there value add potential? Maybe you don't have a website. Remember before I said traffic count is important, but it's not the end all be all. Nowadays, 60% of your tenants come from here, not the internet, but from the internet on a phone. So if you don't have, if you don't have a website or maybe you have a website that's not mobile optimized, you're losing a ton of clientele. So maybe that explains why your occupancy is low. Maybe no one even knows you're there because there's no internet presence whatsoever. That's a value add for us. We'll start looking at, okay, we did the competition study earlier. We got the street rates that all our competitors are charging. What if we look at our facility and we realize that our facility is charging 20% below what everyone else is charging. That's a huge value add for us. We can go in there, we can raise rents. Maybe it doesn't have physical improvements. Maybe we need to put in a fence or a camera system or a kiosk systems to allow people to rent at times when there's not a manager there, or we go hundred percent automated. 
Um, these are all kind of the factors we're looking at. Is there room to expand on the property we're buying? If not, are there adjacent properties that have room that I can go to those sellers? You know, I'm not going to tell them, hey, I'm buying the storage facility next door. I'm going to say, hey, I'm a land buyer. I see you got three acres over here. What are your thoughts on selling it? Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to show my cards and let them know that I'm buying a facility right next to their land. So now they're going to jack up the price. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are all type of value adds that we're looking at. Gotcha. All right. Well, that was a lot to unpack there. It was like fire hose. <laughs> sorry. It's all right. No, no, it's all good. I talk a little fast. No, no, it was all good. I hope I hope anybody who had a, a, who has an interest in storage will go back and listen to that because that was a, a graduate level course on on property screening. Um. So I'm, I'm actually sort of surprised that you don't dig into population right away. Cause one thing I almost always look at, you know, cause I'll have somebody send me, you know, a facility that, you know, God, the numbers look great. Uh, and then I'll look and it's in a town. I got, I think I was looking at one in Tacoa, Alabama. Uh, and, and the population has been, dec- been declining for 30 years. Now for yeah. me, that's a red flag. Um, is that, would you say that's a red flag for you or is that something you go, "Mm, no, I'll, I'll dig into that. It depends on the exit strategy, right? If Mm -hmm. I want to hold this property for 30 years, that's going to be a red flag. But if I want to get in and out, do the value add, bring it up to where it is, list it again with a broker and sell it. That has really no bearing to me. Some of the best deals that we bought were in towns of like 5,000 people or less. Here's a perfect example bought a facility in North Carolina. It was in Franklin, North Carolina. It's in the middle of the mountains. Beautiful area. This is the one that we're talking about trout fishing, rainbow trout. Um, That facility was in a market of like 4,500 people, right? And the population was declining. But what you don't realize from your property data is that this is a second home market. This is a market where all the snowbirds, or is it sunbirds? All the people in Florida, when it gets too hot, they come up to this part of North Carolina. They spend a couple months there over the summer and then they leave and they're, they're bringing really expensive toys, ATVs, jet skis. Uh, they're bringing all these things, but they're not counted in that population data. So you got to take it with a grain of salt, a uh, grain of sand. And when we look at the value add on that facility, we bought that facility plus an additional four acres of land and with the... Uh, uh, the loan to build on that four acres of land, we were all in for just shy of 1.2 million in a market of less than 5,000 people. And our appraisal came back at 1.77 million. So a half a million dollar gain in equity that we're going to be able to execute over 18 months, get in, get out of the market, take our cash and go. Right. So it really just depends on your, on your strategy. And what I tell people is storage is great to hold long-term but you also got to realize the economics, you know, I can, to, for me to make half a million dollars in cash flow on that facility, I'm going to have to hold it for 30 years, or I can just sell it at 18 and make that 30 years of profit up front. Yeah. You know, so what I, what I look at is, is there an opportunity to be in and out? If so, you know, let's get a broker opinion on the, on the resale after I do all my improvements. Great. And then what I'd rather hold long-term are these big facilities, class A facilities where yes, you're not getting them at a double digit cap rate, but you know, a hundred thousand net rentable square feet in one facility is not only easier to manage, but it produces a million dollars a year in NOI, right? 
that's so even though the cap rate's low, the physical cash going into my dollars or into my pockets are very high. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, that's why we don't look at population almost necessarily at all, uh, other than when we're doing our supply index, you know, calculation. Yeah. You mentioned something about uh, tr- figuring out what the the population was based on drive time. Uh, is there? A, I have I have a tool that I use to do uh, population by mileage, um, uh, but just you know just concentric circles. But is there a tool that you're right. using to to do drive time population? Yeah, so there's a couple different tools uh, in this space. Some of them are more expensive than others. So you have Radius Plus is one of them. That's to do population demographic data. They also have a drive time. You have Yardi Matrix. That's another one you can use. Um, and then there's one called Reese, R-E-I-S data. Uh, and I believe they also have drive time. But honestly, you don't need to get these $15,000, $20,000 a year subscriptions. You can just go on Google and just start picking points from your facility, you know, every 15 degrees and just seeing what the drive time that it estimates and you can build it this doesn't have to be perfect right it's not it's not like a yeah. tenant's gonna be a customer's not gonna say oh well i'm outside of the seven minute <laughs> drive time so i'm not going to that facility so just just yeah, rough yeah. estimate yeah. to supplement your concentric circles that you have gotcha gotcha no it makes sense do you have any other questions no <laughs> <laughs> she she my, <laughs> she sometimes her eyes just kind of glaze over no i was listening it was just a lot when i geek out on story i know it is a lot no it was just a lot and i don't have the the i'm still learning some of the things so i don't have sure. the background to then ask a question that is a probably useful one so yeah, yeah. No, sorry okay. those of you who didn't hear my voice that's all right <laughs> yeah so all right let's let's briefly talk about underwriting i don't want to dig into it uh too much underwriting the actual facility you know you've got you know you get the rent roll uh you get their financials so you uh find out what their taxes are going to do uh you can kind of figure out whether or not how where they are uh rent rent wise in the market whether or not there's some room to grow um how are you what's your What's your target? What's where you're going to look at something and go, yeah, not, you know, we dug into it. We can only do 12% cash on cash. We're not interested. Yeah. So, you know, the, the four pieces that we're usually going to look at is like you said, rent roll slash unit mix. We're going to obviously look at the financials over the last two to three years. We're going to look at the condition of the property, right? Is it, is it 30 year old cinder block that's cracked and, having settlement issues or is it brand new Miller buildings, corrugated steel on freshly laid concrete with, with rebar, right? Um, we're also going to look at any value add potential there is because it doesn't really matter how it's been performing. What's going to matter is what can we take it to? So it's hard to say cash on cash return versus cap rate versus, you know, gross rental multiplier, because it really comes down to the way that we underwrite it is where can we get, okay, we have the data from the last 12 months. So lag indicator or last 24 months, very lag indicator, but let's look at some lean indicators. What's it going to look like at the end of year one from us owning it. So 12 months in, 
what's it going to look like at the end of year three from us holding it? 36 months in, right? Because we're always assuming that a value add is going to take us 12 to 18 months, let's say. Then we want at least another six to 12 months of stabilized financials before we spend another six months finding the right lender to either cash us out or finding the right buyer to give us top dollar. So just call it 36 months just for being very conservative. What I'm looking at is, let's start with the first one, unit mix slash rent roll. Is it super weird sizes that don't make sense for the market, right? If you're buying a property in a rural area, having little five by five bum lockers or two and a half by five bum lockers, that doesn't make sense for that market. That market wants 10 by 15s, 10 by 20s, 10 by 30s, 10 by 40s, 20 by 40s. I want to I want to park my boat in there. I want to put my ATV in there. So there's five. If I find a facility in a rural area where it's 300 five by five units, I'm not necessarily going to be too happy about that. Because even if I think I can convert the unit mix, that's going to cost a lot of money to tear all that steel out, re you know, redo all of the 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 supporting structure, make sure that the doors are large enough. This type of things. The second thing I'm going to look at is the financials. And this is kind of the biggest piece that takes the most amount of time in the underwriting of the property itself. What have you been doing over 24 months? What's the last 24 months? And what's the trend? Is the trend in the facility that it's dropping in occupancy? Why? And the question is, it's not, it's not good or bad if it's dropping or increasing. It's that tells us a symptom what is the underlying cause of that symptom is the reason that and this is a this is a true story is the reason that the occupancy has been steadily going down because this is actually a property that was not too far from you it was on uh it was right off the strip about 10 15 minutes i won't name the name of the storage but it was on bonanza drive let's just say that um the previous owner was a jerk and was very non-PC and would get in arguments with potential customers and had a huge temper. So that makes sense why occupancy just slowly went down because nobody wanted to deal with this jerk, yeah. right? As a manager. Um, if it's going up, why is it going up? Is it going up because you dropped all your rates every quarter? You're dropping your rates 10%. Okay. You can get occupancy by dropping your rates. That's not a good sign for us though. Is there yeah. a bunch of competition? Are there two feuding self-storage facilities that are constantly drop, like, racing to the bottom as far as rates goes until the point where you can get a 10 by 10 unit for six months free rent and pay 12 bucks a month and you're good to go? You can't make money off of that, right? So we'll, we'll look at the trends. And then inside of that financial analysis, we're also going to look at where are the competitors at? Are we above street rates? Are we below street rates? Maybe we're buying it at a good cap rate, but we realize that they're at 70% occupancy. And so for us to get to 90% occupancy, we have to slash all our prices by 15% or 20%. So we just got to underwrite that out into our spreadsheet to see if, can we absorb this hit? Is there anything we can do to mitigate against this? Um, so I, I know I'm talking in generalities here. It's just because no, there's so many know, potential things that yeah. you can. We don't, we're but not going to go through every, every, underwriting detail. Yeah. So in general, when it comes to financials, my end all be all question is, is a bank going to lend to me on this? Right. Is a bank going to lend to me on this? Yes. Great. Let's go forward with it. No. Why? 
Is it because the financials are hanky? Is it because the owner has been taking cash and put into, you know, hip national bank in his pocket. So he can't show income. If that's the case, I'm going to go back to him. Like, listen, my, I understand you're trying to cheat the tax man. I feel you. You know, I, I only want to pay what is fair for me too on taxes, but my bank, you need to prove that you're getting this income or else my bank's not going to think this is an appropriate price. So what we're going to have, we have two options, either lower your price or you're going to have to sell our finance for me for two to three years so I can build up this book of financials because you were hiding all this income in cash, putting into hip national bank yeah. or I'm going to walk away from the deal. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's always going to be the end all be all is, is a bank going to lend on it. And banks love storage. Yeah. I mean, they are, I am getting calls every day from new bankers because they see a podcast and then like, we'd love to get in storage. We want to bounce out our portfolio. We have a lot of hotel or retail loans that are not doing great, whatever it is. Um, so they will be very flexible with you. So if a bank that's already being very flexible, you can't lend on a deal at that point, you have two options. You got to adjust the seller's got to carry terms or you walk away from you yeah. either walk away from the deal. So that's, that's the second part is financials. Yep. And then the third part is condition. So when you go into a property, it may be a slamming hot cap rate, but the reason why is because you have to spend the same amount that you would to purchase a property in capital improvements to repair it. The, the soil's not good. They didn't compact it down. Everything is settling. All the concrete's ripping. You have holes all over the metal. It's getting water into the tenants units. Um, it's in a hurricane zone, right? It's in a flood zone. Um, these are all things that we look at on condition and seeing how much we're going to have to spend to bring it up to a level that we would operate a facility at, which is an, a level that we can go to a very conservative lender, like a commercial backed mortgage lender, like a CMBS lender or a life insurance company want, who really wants super safe loans because they offer annuities as a business and them lending on it because they like the quality of it and they think it's going to last at least the 10 to 25 years that they're going to have a loan on the property with you. So that's the, the quality that we're going to build these things up to. And then the very last thing we look at is value add potential. Can we raise rents? Can we automate the facility? Can we install gates, keypad entry and exit? Can we put in a kiosk? Can we expand on the land that's, that's available? Can we, um, can we put up a billboard and rent out the billboard? Can we put up a cell phone tower and rent that out? Can we offer, you know, U-Haul or any trucking service, which we don't like to do, but other people do like to do. Um, is there a potential? This is what we're doing with one of our properties right now. Is there a potential to monopolize the market? So I have a property right now that's the only property on the west side of town. Most of the properties are on, or it's one of two properties on the west side of town. All the other properties are on the east side of town. The closest competitor for me, which is not even a two-minute drive away, we've been, you know, politely, gently nudging her for two years, saying, whenever you're ready to sell, we're here. Whenever you're ready to sell, we're here. As soon as she, and now we're going under contract. So as soon as she sells to us, we own the entire western half of that city. And now there's no competition between us and we can jack rates and monopolize that size, side of the market. Yeah. So these are all the things that we're looking at. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Fran, we've been going for an hour and 10 minutes so far. Uh, and I, we, we, I don't think we should go any further. Um, okay. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, mean, I, would I would love to sit here and talk with you more. And I'm, I'm sure we have a few listeners who are going, no, don't stop. Uh, but we, you know, in an, 
you have a life and we have a life. Uh, but before, <laughs> before we let you go, I wanted you to talk to us a little about it. Cause you mentioned that you're doing some syndication now. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, keeping in mind SEC regulations about what you're allowed right. to talk about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, what you're working on, uh, in that respect? Yeah. So, you know, we have multiple syndications lined up and we have syndications in each one of our funnels, right? Value add deals that are existing, ground up construction deals that we're building, as well as conversion projects that we're doing an adaptive reuse and turning an an old building that was vacant that has good bones into uh, a self-storage facility. And we we have a lot of those opportunities coming up in the pipeline as well. I think that's the the way that we're going to be going forward. So if anybody's ever interested in either learning about self-storage or learning about self-storage syndication, just give me a call and I'll be more than happy to talk to you about, you know, what we're doing and if there's ways for you to get involved. Okay. And are these uh, 506B or 506C, are they open to non-accredited or only accredited? A combination of both. So okay. depending on the size of the project, it'll either be a 506B or a 506C. Gotcha. Awesome. Gotcha. Well, Fernando, thank you so much for sharing with us today, my friend. It was, uh, it was, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you and find out more about you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Yeah, there's a few ways. So, uh, as you can see behind me, the storage stud. So if you go on any social media platform or pretty much any social media platform, you just look up at the storage stud or the storage stud, whatever the handle you know, yeah. prefixes. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, you know, all over the place. I'm, I'm there. You can find me. You just shoot me a quick message um, and, and you can get to me. If you look, if you listen to old podcasts, like your old podcast, I'm pretty sure I put my cell phone number out there um, <laughs> that I'm not yet uh, regretting, but I'm getting close to it. <laughs> um, so, you know, hit me up that way if you can find it. It's going to require you to go back and listen to, to your old podcast. <laughs> I'm not giving it out anymore, but you can I'm not giving it out anymore, but it's out there. Once <laughs> it's on the internet, it's out there forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's another way you can you can get a hold of us. And you can go to our website. Uh, we have a few. Uh, so you can go to thestoragestud.com, uh, get in contact with me there. You can go to titanwealthgroup.com, get in touch with me there. You can go to impactselfstorage.com, get in touch with us there. Uh, just all different avenues of ways of getting in contact. Okay. Awesome. Those will all be in the show notes. Uh, if you're listening and you have any interest, just go to the show notes and these will all be there, including I'll probably put your cell phone back in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't do that to him. No. They have to right. find the first one and listen to I'll, it. I, what to I'll do, you know what I'll do? I'll put it episode in episode 14. Yeah, yeah, I'll put it in a, let me Google that for you. <laughs> Have yes, you ever seen that? there you go. Let yeah. me Google that for you. Oh, Remember yeah. Angelucci's cell phone number. No, right. we just put a link to the other <laughs> yeah. podcast and yeah. people can listen yeah. to that. Yes. All right, my friend. It's been great talking to you. We'll take care. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Okay, that was Fernando Angelucci uh, with thestoragestud.com and Titan Wealth Group. And uh, check him out. Uh, if you have any, any interest in self-storage, I highly recommend you reach out to Fernando. Uh, he's a great guy, very giving of his time. Uh, we took up a lot of it. I hope, I hope you're all still with us. Uh, what was your key lesson learned from that one? 
Um, I think one of the things I really took away was within his systems, he's really using this like tiered or bucket model um, in almost every way. If you kind of pick apart, like when he's look, you know, with the way that he goes through the lists where not only is he having his, the people who are creating lists for him, like really scrub out certain bits and, and kind of, um, go down into different places but then when they go to contact people you know he's starting with these you know low income or not income excuse me low cost um methods of contact and then you know building to um your more expensive letter writing um with underwriting you know there's just all these things so he's not doing it all in one place and just like we've said before when you can eliminate options and kind of reduce your um your decision making process that is always helpful so he's kind of built that into his processes in a uh, but in a very detailed way i mean like you said we've been on this call for um quite a long time and part of it was because he's explaining these in in Mm -hmm. really the detail and not even the full detail so um that is it's it's just there's something to say for getting that far in, especially if you're doing the high volume. He, you know, he, he does a pretty large amount of um, deals and he's doing syndication. So he really needs to make sure that they are working properly yeah. and yeah. kind of, you know, dig in there. So, yeah. You? Um, I would say the importance of building rapport storage owners you know Mm -hmm. you um i mean it's true with a lot of real estate i mean real estate is so much of a a people business but so many people get so wrapped up in trying to dig in and find out about the deal you know Mm -hmm. what you know how big is it you know what's your rent roll and and, you know it's like you're you're putting the cart before the horse you're trying to you're trying to kiss the girl before you've even you know uh re you know, held her hand at dinner, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of the way I see it. You know, it's, um, get focus on getting to know the person and, and let them tell you the story of their facility. And that information will come out. And as you build rapport and you start feeling like, okay, now I can ask, Hey, how much, you know, how much money are you making? How much yeah. money is this facility making? Oh, I'm not really comfortable doing that. Okay. Okay. You know, back off, you know, and, yeah. and it's a, it's a dance. Yeah. Well, um, if these people are already have like a broker that's working with them, then you kind of probably can bypass a little bit of this yeah. because they've already made that decision. But if people aren't sure, they've kind of just come to this, I need, I want to sell this. And they're, you know, a lot of these people, like we we're talking about they're older. They're also, a lot of them are old school. They're using paper rent rolls. They're, you know, they're not in this um, tech savvy place. And so you have to come at it and know that like their way of interacting with the world is much slower. They're not in this, like, let's watch a 15 second, you know, Instagram reel, like, do go 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 you know it's they they want to take their time and you need to respect that if you want to be able to move forward with them yeah gotcha okay all right once again that was fernando angelucci with uh the storage stud.com and titan wealth group check him out we're doing this all again next week let's hit the road bye hey before you go if you like the show we would be delighted if you'd head over to pod chaser and leave us an honest review and do let us know why you like the show 
how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels. You no. Go. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon us. This is something we do every once.